Would you like it if a computer decided whether you were diagnosed with cancer or not, or whether you should get the last remaining ventilator when you're struggling to breathe? That future may not be so far away from us. But can AI really live up to that hype and potential? And what are the ethical risks and concerns? I'm your host, Associate Professor Paul Formosa, and welcome to In the Cave, an ethics podcast. Here to talk about these issues today is Professor Wendy Rogers. Wendy is the Deputy Director of the Macquarie University Centre for Agency, Values and Ethics and Professor in the Department of Philosophy. And in 2019, Wendy was included in Nature's list of 10 people who mattered in science. Wendy, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Wendy, you recently published an article in the journal Bioethics with some colleagues looking past the hype and examining some actual cases where AI is being used here and now in healthcare. So maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about what AI hype means and what the actual reality of AI use in healthcare is at the moment. By AI hype, um, I'm talking about this idea that AI is some kind of magic bullet that's going to solve all the problems facing medicine. Clearly, there's lots of problems facing medicine. Healthcare systems are overwhelmed. It's all been exacerbated by COVID. And there's this idea that by using AI, we'll somehow get better diagnoses, faster diagnoses, treatments that are more personalised to individuals. We'll have better organised healthcare, so it'll be more streamlined, no empty theatres, shorter waiting lists. And also the idea that patients themselves will be enabled to use AI to monitor their health and and have better healthcare because they can get onto symptoms more quickly, um, find uh, resources that they need more quickly and have higher levels of health education. So there's this idea that AI is going to be a a magic bullet and fix everything for us. Uh, In terms of what healthcare what AI is being used for in healthcare at the moment. There's quite a few different areas. Probably the one people are most familiar with is imaging, where AIs can read X-rays or MRI scans and pick up cancers um, or other lesions, sometimes more quickly and more accurately than humans can. AI is also being used in drug development and was almost certainly um, used in the development of the COVID vaccines because it, AI can just trawl data, find likely candidates for drugs or um, vaccines to match particular diseases and so on. It's being used to analyse what we call unstructured data, so where data that might be a mix of case notes, images, lab results and so on, and amalgamate all this into a a single score or recommendation about a person's likely health outcome. It can be used to predict renal disease, for example, by looking at a whole pile of parameters about a person's health. Uh, and it can also be used to improve emergency responses. You know, AIs can detect the tone of people's voices when they ring up, when they dial 999, and from that they can kind of help to guide which are the most urgent, which are the most serious cases. So there's a whole range of applications that are that are in process at the moment and far more on the horizon. Well, that sounds fantastic. So um, what I want to start thinking about, though, is what sort of ethical issues this raises. And in your paper, you look at some of these uh, ethical principles that are relevant in AI use in healthcare. Some of them that you look at include things like transparency or explainability, accountability, justice and fairness, beneficence and harm minimization, and issues around privacy. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what these principles mean and how they apply to AI's use in healthcare. Yeah, it's a good question because we've got these principles and they're they're common in healthcare. Anyone that's done healthcare ethics will be familiar with the the four principles of beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy and justice. But as you say, they're very high levels. So if we think about beneficence, this is the idea that you should do good to others. So in healthcare, it's enshrined in this idea that doctors should always act in the patient's best interest. And that makes sense because a doctor is a person, they can have intentions, they can you know, obviously try and do their best by the patient. 
It makes a little bit less sense when you think about an AI because an AI is not a person. An AI can't have intentions. So already you've got something in slightly incoherent going on. But also you need to ask, well, who's defining the good that the AI should be doing? Again, it's more straightforward in a doctor-patient relationship. You're trying to improve the health of the person, usually taking account of their other interests. But there's a whole lot of other interests involved with AI. So the developer might be wanting to make money. The algorithm writer might be wanting to become famous because their algorithm's great. And the, or the good might be seen as, as very in a very narrow way in terms of trying to just prove that one drug's better than another drug without looking at the bigger picture saying, well, how can we prevent the disease in the first place? So it, it's all very well to invoke beneficence as a principle for AI, but it really needs a lot more unpacking before it can make any sense. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if we're going to do good, we need to ask good for who and what are we comparing good to? It's always a comparative principle, good comparators compared to what? Uh, and so is it comparing it to uh, no treatment or the best treatment we have or human treatment? So h- how do we sort of unpack whose good are we going to take into account here? Well, I don't think it is unpacked okay. uh, in general. <laughs> I mean, occasionally people kind of refer to it and um, in both the cases that we'll, get, we'll talk about a bit later that are in the paper, the developers uh, in both of those cases say that they're going to be doing good by improving di- diagnosis of pain, for example, uh, or doing good by helping people get better and more accurate diagnoses of potential eye disease. So sometimes that is spelled out, but I've been involved in some um, other research where we're trying to really look at whether or not the question of the need for an AI and linking this to some kind of notion of good is taken into account when people write up their research. And we're just finding it's not. It's taken for granted that having an AI to diagnose something will be good without stepping back and saying, well, is it good? Uh, And did you want to go through any of the other principles or issues? I think the one that I'm really interested in is non-maleficence. This is the injunction to do no harm. Obviously, that's very important. And when we think about harm in medicine, we often think about medical accidents or drug reactions and so on. So far, there's very little attention being paid to the types of harms that might arise from the use of AI in healthcare. So I've got a, a colleague who's done some work looking at harms arising from the use of decision aids, particularly patient-held decision aids, where you look at an app to decide whether or not to call the doctor or go to hospital. And, and she's found the same thing. There's almost no discussion of what the harms might be, other than people are aware, aware that privacy, lack of privacy is a harm from AI. But I think there's been less attention to the harms that might arise to the healthcare patient relationship. The constant surveillance, if people really take on board these apps, I mean, I I certainly don't have a Fitbit and wouldn't want an Apple Watch, but the idea that, you know, my technology was watching me the whole time, what does that do about your sense of identity? I think there's a lot lot of thinking we've yet to do about the kinds of harms that AI can cause. Yeah, I mean, clearly privacy is going to be a massive issue here, right? These things all work by... Uh, having training on large amounts of data. And that data has got to come from patients, as you said. So ultimately, there's always going to be a privacy trade-off here. If we want some of these benefits, we're going to have to give up some of our privacy. And I guess we need to think about whether that's that's a trade-off we want to make and how exactly we want to make that trade-off. My feeling is the horse has already bolted. Yep. <laughs> We've got the trade-off we're being given, whether or not we like it. For me, what's important are two questions or two issues. What do people understand about how their data is being used? And I think there are very low levels of what we might call data privacy literacy in the general community. People don't really understand that their data is being harvested and used in various ways, which they might or might not agree with. And the second thing is is who's using it related, because we've got this idea in healthcare. I mean, people, the whole of medical research is based on altruistic involvement of patients who willingly give up some of their privacy, give up their data to help other people. 
And I think in a system, in a country like Australia, which has a public healthcare system, people generally are well disposed to help other people and provide information if that's going to help other people. We've got this idea of a learning healthcare system where data is being used all the time to improve things. And I think people might be far more comfortable with that than the, the data all going off to um, Google or Amazon for all sorts of reasons. And we saw that in the UK where people's NHS data was sold at one point and there's a huge public outcry. So I'm not sure that privacy per se is the issue, but it's the aspects of it that people either don't understand and don't know about and also the purpose for the for the privacy breaches that are important. And of course, you need really high level data security so that people can't hack in and out of it. And again, we don't want people leaving CDs and computers lying around with people's personal data on. Yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on. Maybe if we look at two cases you look at in the paper in detail, PainCheck and IDXDR. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what these two technologies are first. So PainCheck is a smartphone app designed to help assess the pain needs of people who are nonverbal. And its current use is for people with severe advanced dementia, usually in nursing homes, who aren't really able to, to articulate or communicate very effectively. So it's quite hard to assess whether these people are in, in pain or whether there's some, some other form of distress, whether they're hungry or too hot or too cold or something like this. So pain check includes an AI element, which is facial recognition. The person, the carer assessing the pain, points their phone at the person, takes a video of their face, and this is analysed by facial, facial recognition um, software. And then they also input data about what the person's doing, what noises they're making, how they're moving and so on. And a pain score um, gets spat out the other end. Uh, and based on the pain score, the carer might decide to give some pain relief or not give some pain relief. And they can repeat that assessment once they've given some pain relief to see if it made any difference. So this pain check is being used in Australian nursing homes at the moment. It's TGA approved and actually received funding from the Australian government to be rolled out in nursing homes. So that's one of the... the um, that's, that's one of the AIs I looked at, and that's what we would call an assistive one because it doesn't make a decision. It, it just gives a score, and then the recommendation is that if the score is high enough, obviously you should give pain relief. The other AI is an autonomous AI. So this is one that works completely by itself. It doesn't need a human there apart from to take the photo. So IDXDR is a, an AI that takes a photo of the back of a person's eye to see if they've got any signs of diabetic eye disease. People with diabetes should have their eyes checked by a specialist once a year, but sometimes this doesn't happen. It's expensive and it's inconvenient and so forth. The IDXDR can be located in a, in a GP or a primary care setting. It just needs someone who's trained for four hours to take a photo. They get the picture of the back of the eye. This is analysed by the algorithm. And then the person gets an immediate answer within a minute, either your eyes are fine, go away, come back next year, or um, we recommend that you see a specialist. So it's a very quick process. It's very convenient for the patient. They might have just been to get their diabetic medications and they can have their eye check at the same time. So these are two different ends of the AI spectrum, if you like. And in the paper, we really explore the ethical issues that they raise, including you know the evidence base for them, the need for them and so on. So we go through quite a few different issues there, comparing them. And obviously, you, don't, you might not want to read the paper, but in my view, IDXDR comes out as quite a a good a good AI. It's kind of it's it seems to me to epitomise the way that AI can go and actually really provide a useful service. Whereas I'm less convinced about the need for pain pain check and whether it's actually doing any good. Maybe we could talk about some of those ethical issues. I think it's really helpful to have these concrete examples. So you know we're not just talking about AI, some sort of vague entity. So what 
are some of these specific ethical concerns you have, in particular the pain check, and, and what are some of the reasons that, or some of the ethical things that IDXDR does well? So first of all, there's the, the, the hype that we mentioned at the beginning, mm. uh, pain check all over their website, they're claiming to be, you know, AI, AI um, pain diagnosis, but the AI is really a very small part of it, and it's not clear how much it contributes to the pain score, because it's only one of several elements, and the scores are weighted, but not in ways that are explained to the user. So there's quite a bit of hype there. IDXDR does do what it says. It takes a it takes a high quality image and it has the same level of accuracy in diagnosis as the gold standard humans. So it was tested very rigorously against human readers. So that brings me to the evidence. The evidence base for IDXDR is strong. There's been randomized controlled trials. They've been in in the US and I think in Europe now. Very clearly it does what it says it will do and it certainly has the potential to improve access and to decrease costs, which is one of its stated goals. I have to say there's no evidence yet that it's decreased costs and I haven't been able to find anything in the literature about how much it actually costs, so they're a bit coy about that. But it's certainly far more convenient for patients. Paycheck didn't have such a strong evidence base. There, there are um, two or three small trials. They were quite biased when reviewed by research methodology experts that I asked to have a look at them. It was a weak evidence base, and I was surprised the TGA was happy to approve it on the basis of that evidence base. Neither of them is very transparent about where the data goes and, and what happens to it. IDXDR were more transparent about the consent that people in the trials had given about the use of their data. Uh, PainCheck said that people did give consent, but that was a bit unclear how that could actually be achieved, given that the patients involved had severe dementia and couldn't communicate. Uh, I'm, I'm presuming that they used proxy consent, but they didn't make that clear. So, so those are sort of some of the, the, the general problems. One uh, point you raised earlier on I'd like to come back to a little bit is what the use of AI is going to do to our relationship between uh, doctors and patients. I mean, th- this is a key part of the healthcare system, really, uh, that, that sort of form of interaction. When we have more AI, we might have less of that, uh, or maybe more, depending on, I guess, how it's used. So uh, do you have any concerns about what AI might do to that important doctor-patient relationship? I do have concerns, and I, but I'm still on the fence as to whether I think overall the effects will be good or bad. I remember um, when I was a GP in computers for, for first introduced, there was this fear that doctors would just look at their computer screen instead of at the patient, and it would ruin the GP-patient relationship. Well, we still have GPs in relationships, so... <laughs> The doomsday scenario didn't come about as predicted. With these two cases, I think with IDXDR, you have your photo, you have the photographs taken, and then a machine spits out a report for you. The comparison is that you would go and see a specialist, an ophthalmologist. You'd still have a photo taken in the same way, and then the specialist spits out a form to your GP, or or they might they might give you the results on the spot. People work in different ways, so you have got the opportunity to ask, what does this mean? which you don't have with the machine, how much people value that, we don't know because that kind of research hasn't been done yet. Yeah, I mean, it goes to one of the principles we talked about before about explainability. Like, so as you said, you've got that interaction, you can actually ask a question while you can't ask the, the machine a question, I suppose. That's right. And one of the worries with um, IDXDR is that it, it is only trained to look for signs of diabetic eye disease. It's not trained to look for other signs of eye disease, whereas a specialist examining you your diabetic eye check would also notice if you had signs of any other eye disease and tell you. So there's a potential harm there for IDX is that it only does what it says on the box. It only looks at diabetic eye disease. And patients would need to be very aware of that, that they're not, they're not having a, an eye check in the same way as if a human specialist was looking at them. With pain check, 
my worry is that you would look at the video of the person rather than the person, <laughs> particularly if it's not clear what the what the video is adding to the overall um, diagnosis of pain. So it, it could quite sort of depersonalise. And also once people are getting their smartphones out, you just imagine there's going to be more distraction, you know, a message comes in or whatever. It seems to me a potentially unnecessary interference in the care of patient relationship that you wouldn't have with a with another form of uh, pain assessment which are just done with paper and pencil so that is a problem I know Eric Topol who's been very influential in the UK as a champion of AI claims that AI will f- will take away mundane tasks and free up doctors with a really important task of caring and I like his optimism but I probably don't share it to the same degree because particularly in the UK, the NHS is stretched to breaking point. Any task they can offload onto AI will just make the workload slightly more manageable for the people on the ground. So I don't see this utopia where the machines do all the difficult things and the doctors take over talking to patients and you know chatting to them about the meaning of life, <laughs> the universe and everything. So I'm, yeah, I'm a bit more pessimistic than Topol that we'll get the, the time benefit from AI. I think we'll get more accuracy though. Wendy, maybe just to bring the discussion to a close, if you could sort of summarise a sort of key take-home message that for our listeners that you'd like to like them to take from your research or your paper, what would that be? I think that AI is already here and it will become more visible in healthcare over the next few years. I'm cautiously optimistic that it that it could bring down costs, increase efficiency, help make the whole system work better. My biggest fear is that we don't have an agenda. We don't have a national agenda about what kind of AI we should be focusing on and developing. And obviously, in my view, it should focus on the areas of greatest health need. Instead, though, we've got AI being developed by venture capitalists to make a profit. So they're taking the the low-hanging fruit, the medical imaging and so forth, and we may just get more and more of those kinds of AIs and not AIs that are really going to make a big difference to health inequalities and to closing health gaps and so forth in this country. Thanks, Wendy. That was fantastic. Really appreciate your time. Clearly, this is a really important topic. AI... It's hyped, it's exciting, its promise is amazing, all these things it could do, all these great benefits it could bring, but the present reality is a little more modest. And as we've seen, some of those benefits do come with ethical costs, things around privacy, things around explainability, things around about the doctor-patient relationship. Now, do we really want AI to be diagnosing our diseases? Well, maybe if it's more accurate, uh, but we also want to make sure that there's still some human interaction between doctors and patients as well, obviously. Clearly, this raises important questions about what sort of healthcare system we want now and in the future and how we can integrate AI into that healthcare system so that we get the sort of benefits that Wendy was talking about, but while also hopefully avoiding a lot of the ethical costs that we also talked about. But that's all we have time for. If you want to read Wendy's paper, there are links in the show notes. Uh, thanks for your time. This podcast has been a presentation of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency, Values and Ethics, or CAVE, and I've been your host, Associate Professor Paul Formosa.